Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this afternoon's guest moderator from the Tribeca Film Festival, Kara Cusimano, and today's guests, the Tribeca Film Festival sneak peek panel. Hi everyone, thank you all uh, so much for coming out today to meet some of the uh, Tribeca 2013 filmmakers. We have a panel today of uh, six filmmakers who are all world premiering their new films at the festival this year in one of our uh, various sections. So I just want to quickly introduce everyone. We have Lori Collier, directed Sunlight Junior, Matt Wolf, directed Teenage, Diane Nabatoff, the producer of Dancing in Jaffa, Sam Fleischner, the director of Stand Clear of the Closing Doors, Chiemi Karasawa, directed Elaine Stritch, Shoot Me, and Rob Meyer, the director of A Birder's Guide to Everything. So I'm just gonna start with uh, a few questions for each of the filmmakers, and then uh, we can open it up to the audience for some questions. So let's start with uh, Lori. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your film uh, in your own words? It's called Sunlight Junior. And the film features Naomi Watts and Matt Dillon in roles I don't think anyone has ever seen them play before. Uh, it's a social realist film that was inspired by Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed and just by living in the America of today. Um, it's set in this landscape of minimum wage work and they're a couple uh, in love with each other who live in a motel. And the story, the drama of their um, love story centers on um, Melissa becoming pregnant. Basically, they get pregnant and become homeless at the same time. So it's the romantic comedy of the year. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's just the log line of the movie. Um, great performances. Norman Reedus and Tess Harper are also in the film. Other wonderful actors. You, you mentioned the performances. Um, Naomi Watts and Matt Dillon are amazing. What was it like working with them, and what's your approach to kind of directing actors in general? Um, all actors are different because, you know, they're individuals, they're human. Um, and you have to figure out really fast as a director, I'm sure the other directors on the panel will attest, um, to how you can direct this particular human in this particular role. So I, I worked with them really differently. Um, Matt and I did a lot of prep, um, and Matt, on his own, did tons of prep um, with a gentleman named Sean O'Neill, who himself is paraplegic. Matt plays a disabled uh, gentleman, so he was in a wheelchair. And so he worked for three weeks with Sean, prepping the role, and I check in with him uh, periodically, and you know we ate dinners and stuff together. Um, and then Naomi, she's very private and reserved, and. Um, she's a total professional. Um, she comes to set very prepared and like she's ready to work. Um, she's a worker. And um, at first I have to, I, I mean I was in, intimidated by Naomi Watts. I, it was only my second fiction feature film. So um, I just watched her um, and how she works and then I, I figured out, you know, the best way to communicate with her. Um, you know, the best way to give feedback and direction, stuff like that. So it's just, it's a, an actor by actor basis is the way I work. Probably you guys all are the same too. And no I magic, just have to get to know people really fast. I know your film deals with some big ideas about sort of the economic moment in, in the country right now. And, and I'm curious if when you were writing the film, if, you, if those ideas came first or if kind of the characters came first and the ideas sort of emerged from there. 
Um, well, the idea for the film came from me wanting to quit being a filmmaker because I was struggling so much. I should say independent filmmaker. So, no, the story came first. It was actually, I think I dreamed it. It, it literally happened the weekend I had an application to go back to grad school and be a social worker. I was going to fill out the application, and then I woke up the next morning, and I was like, wait, I have one more story to tell. So there you go. And what was the, the richest, the most fulfilling part of making the film for you? I love working on set, directing the actors, yeah. I mean, post was its own, you know, making of the movie. I don't know. Gosh. The best part. Um, working with other people, collaborating. It's awesome. You learn so much about the world and yourself. That's great. Well, I think it's going to be a big success at the festival, and good luck with your premiere. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, guys. So um, next we have Matt Wolf, who directed a film called Teenage. So Matt, your film uh, kind of explores the idea of being a teenager and where this idea came from. What drew you to this topic, and how did you kind of approach such an abstract idea in a concrete way? Well. Luckily, I was uh, working with an author who wrote a book called Teenage, which is also the name of my film. So um, I, I based my film on this book, which is a cultural history of the birth of youth culture. And um, that's how I kind of got inspired originally was the source material that I was working with. And as we saw from the clip, you have a, a really distinctive uh, style to the film. It's very cinematic. Can you talk a little about that approach and what your ideas were there? Yeah, the film is kind of like a living collage of archival footage that's sourced from hundreds of different archives around the world, and then also some original portraits of teenage characters from history that I filmed to look like actual archival footage or home movies from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And then instead of telling the story with experts and historians, like a, a more normal broadcast uh, historical documentary, the film's told from the point of view of teenagers. And uh, my co-writer and I sourced hundreds of quotes from teenage diaries, and um, young actors perform those quotes in a kind of subjective narration. So did you spend a lot of time doing research for the film? Was that a huge part of it? Yeah. I, well, and I worked in collaboration with professional researchers, but I was definitely researching the film for over three years. And I know it focuses mainly on youth in America, Britain, and Germany. Is that something that came from your source material, or was that a choice that you made? A little bit. I think we basically shaped the story around the archival footage that we found, and the strongest material was coming from those three regions, but also the kind of competing definitions of youth during the early 20th century. Um, that was all playing out most kind of intensely in America, England, and Germany, and the teenager was ultimately born in America. And you mentioned the uh, reenactments you did. I'd love to hear a little more about that idea and, and the making of those. That's something I do in all my films is I shoot recreations in a kind of unusual style in that um, they blend seamlessly with archival footage um, and I shoot them in period appropriate formats. So for this film, um, I shot in the style of home movies and um, I use 16 millimeter film and kind of organic and non-digital techniques to degrade my footage so that it looks like actual archival footage. And that device is used to kind of telescope into the experiences of individual characters. So 
There's a kind of drug-addicted flapper in the 1920s who's part of the bright young things. There's uh, a Hitler youth. Um, there's uh, a German swing kid, and there's an African-American Boy Scout. And all of these characters are based on real people, and if, they do sp if there is voiceover from their voice, it comes from a real kind of source as well. So uh, what are you hoping that Tribeca audiences take away from your film next week? Well, the, the kind of story of teenage is set in the past, but I really think of it as a film that's about the future because you know young people always represent the future because they're going to live in it. And um, I hope that it is an opportunity for people to look at the kind of early youth movement alongside other civil rights struggles and um, to really kind of rethink and reevaluate how we look at teenagers today. That's great. Well, it's a really fascinating film, and I'm excited for everyone to see it at the festival next week. Uh, our next filmmaker is Diane Nabatov, who produced Dancing in Jaffa. So, Diane, the central figure in your film is uh, Pierre Dulen, the, uh, the dance instructor. I'm curious how you found him and what drew you to this story, sort of how the film got started. I have a long history with Pierre. I got his rights to make a movie called Take the Lead that came out in 2006, and Antonio Banderas played Pierre. And it was a story of Pierre going into the public schools of New York in 1994 to teach ballroom dancing to public school kids when there was no, ballroom dancing was not cool and there was no dancing with the stars. So he started with 30 kids on a volunteer basis and has now taught over 350,000 children and transformed all of their lives because they hold themselves differently, they learn life skills. It's extraordinary programs, so he called me um, at the end of 2010 and said he wanted to fulfill a lifelong dream and return to Jaffa where he was born to teach Israeli and Palestinian children to dance together. And so of course we went and followed him over 10 weeks and in the beginning, the kids were spitting on each other. They didn't want to touch each other. And by the end, they were holding each other, touching each other, respecting each other. What was it like working with kids on the film? The kids are incredible. I mean, Pierre's belief is if you change the children, you change the future. Because 11-year-old children, you have a chance with. And even though when we went in, they were filled with hate. And they, they didn't even know why. They just like, oh, that's an Arab or that's a Jew. I've been taught to hate them. They weren't born hating them. And he shows you that that person is a person. There's a soul, there's a human being in there. And it's the beauty of ballroom dance is it forces two people to move as one. So you're, you're a partner. You, you have to see that person. You have to be with that person. And it's, it's just this extraordinary experience to watch him changed them, and through changing them, he changed the families. We had 500 people show up at our final competition, and we had veiled Muslim women sitting next to Jewish women exchanging phone numbers. It would have never happened 10 weeks before. So in 10 weeks, one man transformed a city filled with hate and conflict. So the response in the city to the film, is, to your project, when they found out what you were doing was really positive, you found? At the end. In the beginning, there were many obstacles. Nobody understood why. He was doing it. He had to explain the benefits to the kids in terms of education, to the principals, to the teachers. And so he, you know, he fought all the battles along the way. But by the end, he was talking to teachers across Israel and you know, throughout Jaffa, explaining the program. And we started with 150 kids. He's already, since then, since beginning of 2011, taught over 1,000 children. So that's a pretty big increase in a short period of time. 
Is he continuing the same project or is he yes. moved on to something else? No, no, no. I mean, this, this program will continue in Jaffa. It's moved from five schools to 13 schools now. And each year, it sort of geometrically increases. And now he's in Belfast doing the program. Wow. Is there anything you felt like uh, didn't make the final cut of the film that you, you thought was really great? There is, there is one thing that's kind of extraordinary. He taught in five schools, one completely Jewish and one complete, two, sorry, two Jewish, two Arab, and one mixed school, which was a very rare school that was kind of on the edge of were they going to close it or were they going to let it go and continue. And through this program, you know, they, well, I'm not going to give away what happens in the movie, but we, we didn't get the whole backstory of that school and how they might be shut down. And in the end, they were not shut down. That's great. Well, good luck at your premiere Thank next week. Thank you. And our next filmmaker is Sam Fleischner, directed Stand Clear of the Closing Doors, that is uh, having its world premiere as part of our narrative competition. So, Sam, why don't you tell us a little more about the film and what it's about? Sure. Uh, this movie is about a undocumented Mexican family living in Rockaway Beach, Queens. And they have an autistic eighth grade son who, what they call elopes, um, he wanders away from home and has a 10 day odyssey in the subway while his family searches for him. Mainly the mom, it follows the mom and, the, and her son on these parallel journeys. And it's based on a true story, is that right? Can you tell me a little about the origin of the story? Not, not directly, it's, uh, it's based on um, a very frequent um, issue of, of autistic kids running away from home, or not even running away, wandering away. And it's happened in New York a bunch of times. Uh, a lot of autistic kids are attracted to the train system. So, um, yeah, it started with a story that I read about in, in the Times and then did more research and, and realized that it's a, f a frequent issue. And you filmed the, the film in the Rockaways and you were in production when Hurricane Sandy happened. I'm wondering if you could talk a little about that experience and how you folded it into the film. Yeah, we were about three quarters of, a, three quarters of the way through our shoot when the storm came through and um, just completely you know, leveled, leveled the neighborhood. And I didn't have too much of a choice of whether or not to incorporate it. It was just like, you know, so completely different that um, it just, you know, was something I, I sort of had to do and also wanted to do. And, and it, it sort of fits into like the way I, I try to approach filmmaking by being very responsive to um, the unknown elements that come my way and, and so the storm was obviously like a, a big example of that and thematically it actually fit into the story very well and a, lo a lot of the themes that I was trying to get at the storm actually represented um, in a more profound and I think poetic way than anything I was like you know planning on. And your actors are really amazing the actor plays Ricky and, and also his mother uh, how did you find them and what was it like working with them? Uh, so Jesus, who plays Ricky, is um, is on the autistic spectrum, and that was something I, I really wanted to um, do going into the film was work with a, a a real kid on the spectrum as opposed to an actor, a child actor, and we we looked a lot in New York and had a hard time finding someone that I was really comfortable with. Um, to varying degrees, we we I 
I auditioned like some severely autistic kids, which was fascinating, and um, and then more high functioning kids like Jesus. But ultimately, our casting director found him through a blog, and he's from Florida, so we had to fly him and his mom back and forth several times, including right. to the festival, right? He's yeah, coming. they're coming to the festival, and then Andrea, who plays his mom, um, it, it was kind of this cosmic thing where I. I met her on the street. I saw this woman and her son and and she just struck me as being that character. So I started talking to her and then it turned out she had come to New York seven years earlier from Mexico to be an actor and had gone to theater school here and had more or less given up on the idea once she had her kid and was like, you know, so sick of going to auditions. And, and then we met and I sent her the script and she came in and, and read read some scenes from the script and and it was just, it was incredible. And it was like, unbelievable. So I just offered her the part and then, you know, kept moving along. That's great, so what are you hoping for for your uh, Tribeca premiere? Um, well, I hope it, the, you know, it seems like the, the festival's getting really popular, so it's been hard to get tickets. And I hope my family and my friends can, can see it. And, and, and you know, everyone who worked on the movie uh, just, you know, bring them all together to to celebrate our work. I'm I'm like in the middle of sound mixing right now, so it's been pretty much nonstop since since the fall working on this. So, and there's going to be a, a special screening of your film on the second weekend. Do you want to talk a little about that in the Rockaways? Yeah, uh, MoMA PS1 put up a geodesic dome on the waterfront to host cultural events and conversations and. Um, we're going to do a special screening there for the community on the 27th. So if anyone lives in Rockaway and wants to come, please do. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And our fifth film is uh, Elaine Stritch, Shoot Me, directed by Chiemi Karasawa. So how did you first get involved with Elaine? <laughs> My hairdresser. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I... Um, I worked for many years as a script supervisor in feature film and television, like 15, 18 years. And uh, I had actually worked with her um, for a day on a film. My friend John Turturro directed a film called Romance and Cigarettes, and she played James Gandolfini's mother. And uh, there's this hospital scene, and she comes in, and you know, Elaine's like this hurricane of a person. And when, you, when you're a script supervisor, you're in charge of the lines and continuity and blocking, and I mean, there's just like, Forget all of that with her. So she comes in, she, you know, we do the scene several times. Every single time it's a different way, the hat, you know, the coat, the whole thing. And I looked at John and I said, what do you want me to do? <laughs> do you want me to give her a line? Do you want me to give her a blocking? And he goes, just stand back and let her go. And that was the first time I'd ever, um, you know, been, been introduced to her. And several years later, I was in a hair salon and I see this lady at the wash basins, and I looked at my hairdresser and I said, is that Elaine Stritch? And he goes, yeah, she's a client of mine for many years. And I said, that is so crazy. So a couple weeks later, he goes, you know what, you should make a documentary about her, because he knew that I was a documentary producer. And so I went home and I did the YouTube and the Google and the whole thing, and I think I downloaded a bootleg copy of At Liberty, and I was just embarrassed that I did not know more about her. I just couldn't... I, it was like humiliating, you know? She was such a force of nature and such a singular character that I could not believe that the whole world did not know who this woman was. And so I, you know, the next time I was at the salon, he said, do you want me to introduce you? And that's kind of how it started. Um, 
you know, and then I approached her about doing a documentary. That's great. So I feel like sometimes in documentaries about uh, performers, it can be difficult to capture the real person versus the performance. I'm wondering if you found that to be the case or sort of how you got Elaine to open up to you. Well, I, I think performers always want to be performing, and she's certainly no exception. But I think once you spend enough time with them, um, and, and it's more, I think it's more, it becomes more of an exchange. I don't think anybody feels comfortable with somebody following them around with a camera, and I don't think you're ever going to get them to be themselves. But once it becomes a relationship, which ours very much did, I was going through a lot in my life at the time, um, and, you know, she... I think I ended up giving her as much as she gave to me. And that's kind of where it all begins. You know, she was very eager to hear about everything going on in my life, you know. And I could have made a whole different, different, you know, documentary if I included all of her advice to me. But I think that was the beginning of an exchange where people actually feel like they're having a relationship with you, and they are, you know. Um, the, 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 you know, the, I think that her, it's so funny, because Rob, her, her music director and her, and her pianist said to me the other day, um, the first couple of weeks we were shooting, he wouldn't, I couldn't get him to say a thing on camera. And I knew that they had a friendship and a relationship. And, and he said, I just didn't even know who she was being for the first two months that you were shooting. I just was so astonished that she was acting like this person that I think I just waited to see if she was ever going to become herself. And eventually she did. So I, I think, I don't know if that answers your question, but... And one of your screenings at Tribeca is going to be sort of a panel presentation. Do you want to talk a little about that event? It's Charles Isherwood, you know, who's a, um, a very renowned theater critic, is, go is going to lead this conversation. And I think the one thing that's predictable about Elaine is that she's completely unpredictable. I have no idea what she was going to say. Yesterday we were interviewed by three journalists and she said something different to every single one about the process. So I'm very anxious to, to, to just kind of live through it and see what happens. I, I have to ask if Elaine has seen the film. She has. She has seen the film. And? Um, well, the first time she saw it, she told me she loved it. Um, the second time she saw it with an audience, she wasn't so sure. And, um, and I, I, you know, it's really hard. I think it's really hard for someone to watch a film about themselves and be able to relate to it objectively. You know, I think she, she's very hard on herself. And even though I think the film is ultimately a very inspiring film, um, I think she, she wonders why she didn't get enough outfits in there. And, <laughs> you know, she's like, why did you wear, let me wear that damn coat every time? I, I mean, you know, you should have told me these things, you know, things like that. You just, you just can't, you know. But I, I think she, be, being a performer, I think she will like it if she sees the audience like liking it and I and I think that they will yes absolutely I think it's gonna be great so good luck next thank week at you. your premiere thank you and finally we have Rob Meyer who directed a birder's guide to everything so Rob why don't you tell us a little more about your film and what it's about yeah it's called a birder's guide to everything and it's about teenage birders uh, which are commonly known as bird watchers um, and one in particular, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, thinks he's discovered an extinct duck, or a duck previously believed to be extinct, so he convinces those guys to go on a road trip to find it and make their place in birding history, all in the backdrop of uh, him coping with his mother's death and his father's remarriage um, and some sort of family issues that he's kind of running away from. 
And how did the project first get started and what drew you to it? Um, the, the, the feature is based on the short I made uh, a long time ago now about the same characters who were into aquarium fish, uh, which is what I was when I was a teenager growing up, and I adapted it into a feature. Um, and I thought a road trip movie about kids searching for a, a fish didn't really make sense, so we switched it to birds. Uh, and and I, at the time, or I used to work at Nova, the science documentary series, and learned about the ivory-billed woodpecker, uh, which is the first bird to go extinct. Oh, no, I'm sorry, which went extinct and was believed to have been refound. Um, and I just was sort of fascinated by the cameramen and the people who went looking for this thing, and it made a big deal. And so I thought this would be a fun story to have as the kind of the MacGuffin, if you will, the thing they're searching for uh, throughout the film. And your film is more of a comedy than some of the other narratives we've discussed. What is your approach to directing comedy and, as opposed to drama? Um, yeah, I, I hope people find it funny. It's definitely a comedy, though it's sort of a dramatic comedy. Uh, I like to play comedy really like straight. I really hate it when people ham it up too much and are going for laughs. So I'd really try to get the actors, especially the kids, to believe in their characters and not look around for people if they're smiling or if they, if they did a good delivery, but just to take it, take it seriously. And these kids take birding really seriously, which is part of what the humor is derived from. And most of the birders in the film took it, you know, took it seriously. Um, so yeah, I think, that, I think finding the honesty in it, and as opposed to like trying to tell jokes for laughs is sort of how I approached it. And it's definitely part of a tradition of high school sort of coming of age road trip comedies. What films influenced you when you were working yeah, on it? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, Stand By Me, I'm sure, will come to mind when people think about boys going into the woods to look for something. And that was definitely, when I was growing up, my favorite coming of age film. And a lot of the 80s coming of age films like Lucas, which is a less known one, or um, Goonies. Uh, and then, yeah, and, and then like, you know, Moonrise Kingdom came out sort of after we were done shooting, but certainly those are the kind of films I really gravitate towards. Sort of kids, kids, but kids movies that I think adults will like and are sort of more independent than a kids movie, if you know what I mean. What was uh, the biggest challenge in making the film? Getting it made was the biggest challenge. It takes a, it takes a long time to convince people to, to support your film. Uh, so that, honestly, I mean, that took like three, two, three years of, of going out and trying and almost getting there and it falling through and almost getting there. So that was really challenging. And then the shoot was also challenging. We didn't have a whole lot of time, so it, we always felt like we were up against a really fast schedule. So I'd say those are the two most challenging parts. That's great. Congratulations on the film and good luck next week. Thank you. Thanks. We have time for a few questions from the audience, if anyone uh, has some questions for the panel or for the filmmakers. This question's for Sam. Uh, just watching the clip for standing clear of the closing doors, is there a way to feel sorry for Ricky? And uh, what type of message w would you want to teach ki children, who, autistic children who see this movie? Uh, yeah, good questions. Um, there's, there's definitely times when you feel bad, I think, for him because he's stuck without food and he doesn't really know how to take care of himself and he doesn't know how to... Uh, the bathrooms are locked, for example. Um, so he's in a dire situation. So I hope people feel bad for him. Um, having worked with a, you know, a, a kid who is on the autistic spectrum who did an amazing job. I mean, he was just like um, applauded by Stephen Holden for his performance and that is uh, deeply moving. And I think uh, it's important that kids, um, you know, build confidence however they can. And, um, and I hope that people stop calling uh, 
you know, autism a disorder. I mean, obviously, in a lot of cases, it's it's very debilitating. But in others, um, these are very special people who who have great potential. And um, Jesus represents that in a really inspiring way. Uh, the kid who plays Ricky. And so, yeah, I just I hope you know, as as more and more people are diagnosed with autism, that are um, are like projections of what that means um, is is very open and and changes. Thanks. Any more questions? Uh, hello, uh, this is uh, this is for Sam. Uh, my question is uh, is where you got the title for the film because I only hear that all the time at the subway, stand clear of the closing door. So I was wondering where the title came up. Yeah, the. A lot of the movie is set on the subway. It's about a kid who runs away on the subway. And obviously, that's something you hear again and again on the train. And, and yeah, it's kind of an abstract title. Uh, I mean, if you take it out of the context of New York. But I, I think it, it represents some of the themes in the movie. And, and I just like the phrase. It's like a kind of a, an ominous phrase. But there's a lot of truth to it. And... And it's been, and it was especially useful since we were, you know, shooting on the train, and there was a lot of people like curious about what we were doing. Um, when we told them the title, I think it it probably stuck with a lot of people, and hopefully they'll be able to like remember it and look it up and check up on us. How much rehearsal time do you have with your actors before you actually begin shooting, or do you have rehearsal time? Do you want to start? Um, uh, in independent filmmaking, you don't get that much rehearsal time. Um, I had three weeks with one of my leads and an afternoon with another. So for the actor I didn't have any rehearsal time with, I wrote a five and a half page character bio. And I was like, here, <laughs> this is who you are. Um, yeah, I don't know about any of your other experience. Uh, yeah, it, it varied for me, but I met Andrea, who played the mom, over a year before we shot. I was actually trying to shoot this movie a year uh, in, in the fall of 2011, and and I didn't really have the the things in place that I needed. So, and she lives near me, so I was able to like spend a lot of time with her developing the character. I mean, rehearsal can mean so many different things, but. I think we were like formally, you know, rehearsing for maybe just two to three weeks leading up to the shoot. Um, but there's like a lot of different things that I would consider being rehearsal that are, I don't know. Yeah, preparation. Yeah, I didn't have much rehearsal time. And I always wondered why that is, when it, why everyone always says there wasn't much rehearsal time when it seems so important until I went through the process. And it seems like when you finally get the green light, you have very little time to do everything, like you have a very, you have to find the whole cast, and the cast can come from all over the country, so we only got our whole cast together the day before we started shooting, and even then some of the cast weren't there. So I, with the lead, I Skyped with him, you know, and we went through scenes, and I played the other parts, and we did one kind of group Skype with one of the other kids. Um, but yeah, then we had like the read-through the day before, and then there was like a lot of figuring out stuff on set, like the mornings or the weekends during the shoot. Um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't, it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. It, 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 especially with the kids, I wouldn't have wanted them to overthink and over 
perform their parts, I wanted to have some spontaneity left, and they tend to get in their heads if you do it too many times. So um, assuming they knew their lines, I was, I was pretty happy, and they did, so that was great. There are also economics involved when you're making an independent film and you're working with SAG actors. You have to pay for rehearsal. So it's you know a question of, are you going to get that extra day or two or three to shoot your film, or are you going to pay your actors to rehearse? It's all you know, a little um, balancing act. So, yeah. And Matt, I don't know if you want to speak to this as well, since your film is a documentary, but you had recreations and narration, and if rehearsal was at all a part of that process. Well, I, um, I worked with actors in two different ways. I had voiceover that I workshopped with, with actors who were kind of helping me develop the script of the film. So it was like a workshop for me. And then I re-recorded the final voiceover with no rehearsal with, with some actors. And then the recreations I shot were like home movies. And most of the people I worked with weren't um, professional actors. And it was like making a home movie. Um, except I had a big kind of crew behind me controlling how it looked. But, uh, you know, for that reason, rehearsal wouldn't have made sense in, in that context. Any more questions? Hi, this question is right here uh, for Diane. Um, I thought it was interesting you talked about how the kids had been socialized with hate and kind of coming in there to shoot the film. Um, I'm curious about how the parents responded and uh, did you see any sort of change in acceptance or tolerance with the parents? And you talked about the two exchanging numbers at the end, but how were they on the front end? And did you get any resistance from the parents that you had a film crew in there, you know, filming this with their children? Well, I think that the, the parents in general in Jaffa live just separately. There's no real interaction. It's, it's, you know, they share a city. There's been, you know, a history of trouble over the years, but they just keep separate. This was the first time someone was coming in and saying, no, I'm going to put these kids together. And I think there were clearly parents who were like, uh-uh, I don't want my kids doing that. I don't want them touching a child from the other world. And, you know, Pierre had to overcome that. He had to go in. There was, there was one parent who was dead against it, and Pierre went in and talked to him and explained how it would change his um, child's approach to the work at school, how her grades would change. I mean, he has a huge amount of documentation to back up this program. He's been doing it for a long time now, and he's really seen transformations occur. And the issues in Jaffa are very dramatic and very intense, but they're the same issues everywhere in the world. It's racism, segregation, and prejudice. And that's what he does when he teaches in the Bronx and teaches in Minnesota. It's, it's the same stuff everywhere. So yeah, I mean, there were, there were parents who definitely came around and who were integrated. And then there were parents who thought, okay, that's nice. But I think, I think he made a huge impact because you would have never seen those people all come together and sit together. And I think they've remained friends. The kids have remained friends. So it opens up the parents to it. My main question is really to Chimi. It's not oftentimes that someone will just take someone else's idea and make a documentary because it's very costly. And I'd like to know how you um, are doing with it uh, from a financial standpoint. <laughs> um, how I'm doing with it? You mean how I raise the money? Um, I, it's very, that's a very, actually that's a very, very good question. 
when I, when PA mentioned to me Elaine Stritch and I knew that, you know, I discovered that she was a theater icon, you know, and people sort of knew her in, in the pop world. I, and I decided that I wanted to do it after I had researched and Googled her and we had this introduction and that's the question that I asked myself is how, I'm gonna, how am I gonna finance this film, you know? Who knows her? And a week later, I found myself at brunch with a woman that, that was a, um, she was a patron of the arts, but she was a friend of mine. And um, she said, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I kind of have this new idea that my hairdresser suggested a documentary about Elaine Stritch, but I have no idea how I'm gonna finance it. I don't know if any, who knows who she is, um, but she's this remarkable, remarkable performer that I want to bring into the mainstream somehow. And this woman looked at me and she said, how much do you need? And I, and you know, I'm, I'm like sitting there with my ex-Benedict and I was like, I don't know, like somewhere between four and 600,000. And she goes, can I give you one? <laughs> and I was like, $100,000? And, and she said, yeah, yeah. She said, Elaine Stritch is a phenomenal, phenomenal performer everybody should know about her and that it, it just sort of started like that and then you know we had a dinner with Elaine and then she wanted to give two and then um, and that was enough to get me through production for about a year and a half we shot her I mean over the course of almost two years but you know after a year and a half we started editing and then I had to raise more money and money kind of came like that I mean we sort of got, you know, got desperate, but then people would come with money at the, at the last minute, you know, suddenly chunks of money would come, and then I started an Indiegogo campaign when, when a particular investor, the money never came. He kept promising the money, it didn't come. I started this Indiegogo campaign. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but um, we made this little video, and I think it was probably four weeks into the campaign, um, I got this email, and it said, um, my name is Alec Baldwin, and I'd like to know what your phone number is. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, we had shot behind the scenes at 30 Rock the year before. And um, so I, what, you know, I hoped that it wasn't a joke, and I texted this person my number. I emailed him my number, and 20 minutes later, the phone calls, and it's, hi, it's Alec Baldwin. How much do you need? I just saw your campaign on Indiegogo. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it kind of went on from there. So he signed on in like, I think two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago? Something like that. And then, and then we had just this gap of like $65,000 and a friend of a friend of mine uh, said, oh, remember so-and-so that executive produced that movie that you were the script supervisor on? She heard about, you know, this, this campaign, how much do you need, sent her an email. And literally, because of the press that started accumulating um, in conjunction with the campaign and, you know, people that had been hearing about the movie, you know, the last quarter of the financing, along with the Indiegogo campaign, which raised about 20 grand, um, came. Like in the last two or three weeks, I think $100,000, the remaining $100,000 um, came. So, you know, you never know. I just... I, you think if you have a great idea and you feel strongly about it, you know, it's like that, that Kevin Costner movie, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> it's kind of true in this sense, 
You know, she's, she's a singular character. She is a force of nature. Anytime, there are people that are so passionate about her, I can't even tell you, you know. I, when, I, when I put on the Indiegogo campaign, you know, there's going to be a special from now until Friday. Anybody that gives more than 20 bucks gets their name in the special. Thanks. And I, my, my, you know, iPhone went berserk. And we have a crawl at the end of my movie that's like three rows, three columns of Indiegogo backers. You know, it's crazy. So I think you just have to be persistent and really passionate and sort of believe that it's going to work out at the end of the day. So that's about all we have time for. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for coming. Uh, tickets are on sale now. The Tribeca Film Festival starts on Wednesday and runs through April 28th. And complete information is online at TribecaFilm.com. So thank you again to all our filmmakers, and good luck next week.